the Honorable, ever-talented Connie Morello. Please welcome her. Relationship 70 years later, and also they serve a darn good breakfast here. And I never go any place where I don't get as many berries as we have. Else. So this is a very, a very interesting and important way to start Friday morning because it is about that special relationship, why it matters uh, 70 years later. And I am, I'm going to be introducing Mac Thornberry. And Mac is going to then introduce His Excellency uh, Peter Westmacott and, and his colleague, Congressman uh, Adam Smith. And so, you know, I might ask him to come up here right now. So, if I could ask uh, Mac, would you mind coming up here before I finish introducing you? Your Excellency, I think we have you in the center. Oh, and, and Congressman Smith. But I think one of the reasons one of the reasons this was particularly important to me is that I am a commissioner on the American Battle Monuments Commission. This is the group that is the guardian of our American cemeteries overseas. There are 24 of them and the monuments. So I had the opportunity to go to Normandy for D-Day. And I must say, as you all know, since you watched it on TV and heard about it and read about it, it was exceedingly moving. And to see those veterans from the Second World War, many who had served at Normandy, on the shows at Normandy, to see them being hugged, uh, being recognized, it was just so very moving, very moving. But I also, because we have uh, His Excellency uh, Peter Westmacott here, I wanted to mention that on Memorial Day, I actually was in London. Uh, we spent Memorial Day, the commission, at Cambridge Cemetery, Cambridge American Cemetery, and at Cambridge Cemetery, they have also a wall of the missing. And there were two names that I thought I just mentioned to you on that wall of the missing. One was Joe Kennedy Jr. And the other one was Glenn Miller. Well, then we also went to uh, uh, Brookwood, uh, Brookwood Cemetery, uh, which is a smaller one, but it was also surrounded by the Commonwealth, uh, uh, you know, Graves Commission too which has uh, people who are buried there in all of the various areas that are part of the Commonwealth. So again, it's, a, it's another way of kind of linking up uh, the uh, UK and the United States. But today I have the honor introducing the Vice Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, the Honorable Matt Thornberry from Texas. As a matter of fact, I just want to mention that I served in the Congress for eight years in the, in the minority, and then he came along, and it became a majority. <laughs> and I had eight years in the majority with Mac, and I always saw him as a very highly respected, very dedicated, fair man. So thank you for making it uh, uh, the majority at that time. He, uh, in the years since he was elected in 1994, he's established a reputation as one of the leading authorities on intelligence and national security issues on Capitol Hill. He's also become known for his ability to look over the horizon 
I, I call him an oracle when you really think about what he's accomplished. He is that, that oracle. In the mid-1990s, as an example, he was one of the few members of Congress talking about the revolution in military affairs and the need to increase our investment in such areas as special forces and unmanned aerial drones. Imagine, in the mid-1990s. In the late 1990s, he saw that the nation's nuclear weapons complex needed reforming, and he introduced a bill to do just that. And when uh, the Winhole V spy scandal revealed holes in our nuclear security, his legislation became the basis for a package of reforms that were signed into law. Well, a few years later, he was unfortunately proven right once again. He was one of these people who says, I'm sorry I was right, but uh, uh, we, we, we could have cheated from what he had predicted or what he, what he saw. In March 2001, he introduced a bill to establish a Homeland Security Department. Can you believe that? So that America was better prepared for a terrorist attack. 2001. On September 10, the bill had only a handful of co-sponsors. And by the 12th, um, by the following June, too, it became the basis for legislation that was signed into law. When asked later about the legislation and the fact that he had introduced it six months before 9-11, he said simply, there are some things you don't want to be right about. Defense News has called him a smart cop who's not afraid to buck the party line, while National Journal has called him the E.F. Hutton of Congress. Because when he talks, everyone listens. I wish I had that ability. If you listen to speculation today, Mac is in line to become the next chairman of the Armed Services Committee. But I'll leave that for the speculators. Uh, got something much more important to do, and that is to have you welcome Mac Thornberry, uh, the Honorable Mac Thornberry. Thank you, Connie, and, and it was a delight seeing you at Normandy. Sally and I uh, love that uh, as, as, as much as, as you did. i got to confess, though, I have a little bit of resentment against Conselman and his henchmen for uh, getting me into this gig this morning because they know enough about my interest to know that I could never turn down an opportunity to come and talk about the special relationship, and at the same time, I would always feel inadequate in trying to do that. Uh, it's kind of like uh, one time Lady Thatcher came to Amarillo, Texas to do a charity event and I was asked to introduce her. It was the most nervous I'd ever been for any speech ever. Not because I thought that I would impress the audience, because obviously they didn't care about me. They were, I was just standing in the way of listening to her. I wasn't trying to impress her because this is one of the leading, you know, towering figures of the 20th century. But it's just there's some sorts of things that you ought to do right. Um, and that's kind of the way I feel about, uh, about this topic today. So in my inadequacy, I will resort to, of course, quoting Churchill, um, when he talked about the special relationship at Harvard in, in 1943. To a large extent, they are the ties of blood and history. Uh, excuse me, my eyes are... 
uh, law, language, literature, these are considerable factors. Common conceptions of what's right and decent, a marked regard for fair play, a stern sentiment for impartial justice, and above all, the love of personal freedom, or as Kipling put it, lead to live by no man's leave under the law. These are the common conceptions on both sides of the ocean among the English-speaking peoples. I think that's, that really captures what the special relationship is. That's the essence of it. We have a shared history, shared law, shared language, shared culture, and largely shared interests. And those things are special not just because we share them, but because they, many people believe they are the foundations of what we think of as Western civilization. I want to highly recommend a book that came out last year by Daniel Hannon, who represents a part of England in the European Parliament. Uh, it's entitled Inventing Freedom, How the English-Speaking Peoples Made the Modern World. And basically, he goes through a chronology of the history, but also an analysis of the reasons why the English-speaking world has been the most successful, has set the standard for the rest of the world. And in one part, he boils it down to three key factors, the rule of law, personal liberty, and representative government. Those were the things that were born, basically, in the shared relationship. They, you know, I would say God invented freedom, but, but in his term, they were invented in the English-speaking world and have spread and, and created more prosperity and security than, than anything else. And it's just interesting for me to think back you know that speech I was mentioning when Lady Thatcher came to Amarillo, Texas? I was all ready to hear about Gorbachev and the Cold War and all of these anecdotes for, for being in, in that position. It wasn't anything like that. She talked about the rule of law. It was more like a law professor's sort of speech. And at the time, I was kind of disappointed. But the truth is, she figured she was not there to entertain us with stories about the past. She was there to help warn us about the essential freedoms of our civilization and how we better not let them get away. And, and so I, I was thinking back to that speech as I was reading Hannon's book about what those foundations are, and I think she had, had pegged them. Because if we don't remember and understand, if we don't protect and, and nurture the foundations of our strength, obviously we can lose it bit by bit. It's kind of like Lincoln warned in his Lyceum speech, the silent artillery of time that, that makes us, that helps us forget our, our founding. And as y'all remember, he went on to say that uh, for us, uh, as a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. Uh, it's up to us. And of course, there's a number of ways a country can commit suicide, one of which is to forget what's, what made you what you are. Forget those values that were essential to your founding. Uh, to, to lose uh, the rule of law, to have it erode, or personal freedom, or uh, to have representative government that doesn't function. You know, if any of that rings a bell, then you can think about, uh, about that. And you can also spin yourself to death. And uh, particularly for democracies, you can also fail to defend yourself. And so I believe military strength and a willingness to use it when appropriate and if necessary still matters. And I would say that one of my primary concerns about the special relationship is the downward drift in our willingness to defend ourselves both with money and, and in spirit.
partly because it makes the special relationship a little more one-sided in that area, partly because it limits our joint ability to spread those values that we were talking about through the rest of the world, partly about because of what it says about what's happening inside our countries um, when we become more self-absorbed. But, but I do believe the pinnacle of, of uh, U.S.-British uh, military cooperation was D-Day, as, as Connie was mentioning. Uh, it was incredibly moving for, for Sally and I, too, to be there. By the way, uh, at the international ceremony, by far the largest ovation from the crowd was for the Queen. Uh, much more so than any of the other figures who were there. And if the French can applaud the Queen, <laughs> things, things, things are, are, are looking up. But if you, think, if you think about it, it is remarkable. Uh, a joint military command, British soldiers serving under American command, American soldiers serving under British command. It, it is remarkable. So let me just finish up going back to Churchill on, uh, on June 6, 70 years ago. He came to report a couple times to the House of Commons about uh, how the things were going on, on the beaches and concluded with, it is therefore a most serious time that we enter upon. Thank God we enter upon it with our great allies, all in good heart, and all in good friendship. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we're in another very serious time, most serious time, when we need the strong ties that come with our special relationship. So now let me turn and, and off and, and uh, give the opportunity for the view from across the pond. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Her Majesty's Ambassador to the United States, Sir Peter Westmacott. He has been involved in British diplomacy for more than 40 years, including spending time as the British ambassador to France and also to Turkey, a very key country. He spent three years as the deputy private secretary to Prince Charles, has, has been uh, stationed here in Washington before, but we are certainly delighted to have him with us today. Sir Peter. Thank you, Mike, so much. This is this is a real treat. It feels rather like being with family. So thank you for the welcome, and I agree with you on the breakfast. Yes, <laughs> yesterday I was at CSIS, and the food truck bringing breakfast broke down. So <laughs> this is this is a, a marked improvement. <laughs> thank you very much. A few thoughts, and then I, I think the, the value of an occasion like this is to have a, a proper discussion and, and see if we can deal with some Q and A. Um, you mentioned feeling inadequate. You shouldn't feel like that. Mac, you did a beautiful job of uh, giving a flavor of the special relationship and why it matters. Uh, I feel in many ways almost more so. A couple of little anecdotes, and then I'll, I'll touch on a few points before we get into a discussion. D-Day anniversary is always a very important uh, moment. It's always very emotional. It, it is an extraordinary reminder of what we have done together. I was there five years ago when the president came for the first time. We didn't have the Queen, but we had Prince Charles, we had the Prime Minister, we had the Defence Secretary, we had President Sarkozy, we had all sorts of stuff going on. But one of the things that's sometimes worth remembering is, is just this sheer scale and the organisation of those landings. And I think I'm right in saying the D-Day landings put together over the days following D-Day, it was about 350,000 soldiers came ashore. 175,000 of them were British and Commonwealth, 130,000 roughly speaking were America. It was an extraordinary joint operation, uh, which then worked for a number of different reasons, but not least because of the, the level of preparation that, that went into that. And it's 
it's sometimes easy to forget that it was by no means a done deal, and it was by no means straightforward in advance. Something like two million uh, US servicemen came to the United Kingdom in advance of D-Day. It was an extraordinary number of people. And that was in you know, 1942, three, early 1944. And when you think that the first royal visit to this country had only taken place about three years early, 1939, because the British ambassador at the time and his predecessors used to advise the 1920s and 1930s that Britain and America are getting on so badly and are so close to going to war that it is not a good idea for the, His Majesty to actually pay a state visit or indeed any other kind of visit to uh, the ancient colonies. So, you know, we came quite a long way. And in that wonderful little book called Citizens of London uh, by Lynn Olson, which I'm sure some of you have read, there's all sorts of little details of how the relationship evolved during the war and how certain wonderful American public figures uh, played a major role in helping to keep us alive during those dark days, 1940, 1941, uh, and eventually preparing public opinion here for becoming involved in the Second World War. Here's a, here's a little kind of factoid, but it does illustrate the point. Of all the mail sent back home after D-Day landings by US servicemen who come to live in France, something like 40% were sent to the British families that put them up, uh, and 60% to their own families and loved ones back at home. And that was a voluntary uh, operation by so many of those British families, because in fact there were barracks and billets, and there were formal places for the soldiers to stay. But the families there said, no, 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 you just come and stay with us. You've come here to help us win this war, come and live with British families. So 40% of the mail that went back was to those relationships which built up during the war. And I think it's an indication of just how closely we all became involved. My own father, in a different kind of way, he was sunk in an aircraft carrier at the beginning of the Second World War, and he was badly damaged in another aircraft carrier later on, and came to Norfolk, Virginia, to have that ship fixed. Uh, and he was put up by a family called Haynes's in Norfolk, Virginia, with whom he stayed in touch for the rest of his life. And I think those relationships formed during those difficult times are an indication of the, the human uh, dimension of this relationship. Since then, no less than six times since the Second World War, the United States the United Kingdom have ended up fighting shoulder to shoulder in different conflicts. Uh, it is a remarkable achievement. It is because we have those shared values and interests that you were just talking about, Mac. A couple of days ago, we were hosting at the, at the, uh, the embassy uh, a reception for the alumni of British universities. And we had a couple of hundred brilliant young and indeed not so young people who spend time at a British university. Uh, who come to take advantage of the opportunity to meet up with their, their fellow alums. And it was Ash Carter, until recently Deputy Defence Secretary here, a wonderful friend, uh, who spoke very movingly of the way in which his time at Oxford University had reminded him of the shared values, history, culture, interests of our two peoples. And that frequently, I think, spending time in a university during those formative young adulthood years is an important part of ensuring that the relationship remains personal and special to you for the rest of your life. Even today, we still have, I'm very proud to say, 50,000 United States citizens are studying in the UK at any one time. Uh, about 50,000 a year, therefore, come. About 10,000 British students come to British American universities each year. So proportionate to the size of their country and the population, that is about more. And we are very proud of the number of people in all sorts of Positions, some of it in the White House administration, Supreme Justice, Supreme Court, some of it in business, some of it in media, people who have spent time at a British university. And I think that's a very important part of keeping this relationship 
feeling as special as it is. There are lots of other things that remind us of what's going on. You've, you've quoted Winston Churchill. There are all sorts of wonderful Churchillian stories, and he is uh, he is perhaps the example of it. The statue outside our garden, where Winston Churchill looks on Massachusetts Avenue, as many of you will know, you know, one foot of it is on British territory, and one foot of it is on the United States territory. Um, right, who cuts the grass is sometimes a matter of dispute. <laughs> but you know, he is the the quintessential Anglo-American, and uh, and he is the example of uh, so much of it that is special. But take a look around at some of the other things that are going on. Um, we are about to celebrate the 800th anniversary of the signature of the Magna Carta. And as my Prime Minister said on the anniversary of its 799th year of its signature uh, last weekend, I am almost ashamed that American school kids know more about the importance of Magna Carta uh, than we do here in Britain. And he's uh, determined that we should all rather more about it. <laughs> he was well, actually interrogated on by David Letterman about the Magna Carta. I couldn't remember what it meant in English, but we don't. <laughs> but it is, nevertheless, very important in terms of those individual liberty, accountability, representative government, and the fact that there cannot be autocratic monarchs without any responsibility to their people in a functioning modern society. But you know, that was 800 years ago. We are very proud of the fact that two copies of the Magna Carta are visiting the United States uh, on the occasion of the 800th anniversary. One is already in Houston, another is coming to the Library of Congress a little later on. And the one that comes to the Library of Congress was actually signed in 1215 and is coming, I think, with the, the Royal Edict uh, of Implementation. We're going to have a celebration at the Library of Congress around uh, that event. And I think that's, a, that's an example of shared values, shared origins, how some of the things which way long time ago helped make the United Kingdom what it is now, um, have been of value as other countries have established their own uh, set of, of fundamental principles which, which guarantee the liberty of individuals and the rule of law and, as we see in this uh, wonderful country, the prosperity of the country. At the defense level, that relationship continues to go from strength to strength. Just uh, 10 days ago, for the first time since the 1940s, we had a meeting of all the Joint Chiefs militarily in London. Hadn't happened in the UK. It's happened once, I think, here in the United States, just two, two or three years ago. But we have revived the habit of the British and the American bull chiefs getting together to look at the military strength challenges, the budgetary stuff, but also the operational issues that we need to look at together. And it was a reminder not only of how closely we do cooperate and how much we have an identity of views and values, but also of the extent to which we are embedded with a level of interoperability between the United States and the United Kingdom which is really very extraordinary. Right now, as we decide, prepare uh, what we're going to do to try to help ensure that the terrorists of the ISIL do not overrun the whole of Iraq, there are a whole lot of different things that are going on. And some are visible, some are not so visible. The United States, the United Kingdom, other close allies, of course, as well, uh, who are working together in a way that is so automatic, so normal, so much part of our daily lives. You know, British pilots flying US aircraft, Royal Navy ships accompanying US aircraft carriers, all sorts of different things that we are doing. Uh, Backfilling operations that may be necessary in other parts of the world to allow certain things to happen uh, in and around the Gulf. Uh, cooperation on counterterrorism, support on the humanitarian side for the displaced people uh, in the country's concerns. So all that is happening almost as if uh, everybody is unaware of it because it is so natural and so automatic. A year ago, I had the privilege of going to Colorado Springs with Prince Harry. Um, of the royal family for the Warrior Games. Warrior Games, a rather, I think, wonderful American invention where we have had the privilege of being the only 
foreign nation invited to send a delegation. These are kind of Olympic games for wounded warriors. And Prince Harry was so impressed, so touched by being there, and every now and again joining in the games with the wounded guys, as he called it, that he felt that this was a, a model which needed to be taken to the United Kingdom. So in September, we're going to have something called the Invictus, in other words, undefeated uh, games for wounded warriors, not just from the United States and United Kingdom, but actually from 13 different nations which have been fighting on the same sides uh, over uh, recent years and conflicts where we have again come together to defend those values. We're going to use uh, the big stadium that we built for the 2012 Olympic Games, and we're going to build on the extraordinary public success of the Paralympics, which in the UK anyway was almost more impressive in terms of the indications of courage of people who are missing limbs and arms and so on running in these races than the, than the Olympics themselves. It went down very, very well with public opinion, marvelous television of people uh, competing partly in order to complete the race as well as to, to win against the competition. Building on that uh, and as a means of reminding society that we still have an abiding responsibility to soldiers when they come home damaged uh, and needing to be looked after by the society which they have lost in many cases limbs defending the liberties of that society. So we will be doing that, Prince Harry will be there, who knows, the Queen, Prime Minister may be there as well, and we're looking forward to having no less than 100 wounded servicemen from the United States Armed Forces <coughs> along there, the biggest delegation together with the Brits. And that'll be in September. Just, again, a further indication of how we stick together uh, as allies uh, with a responsibility to our soldiers, whether they are wounded, whether they are not wounded, uh, after the moments when we have fought side by side. And that will take place one week after the NATO summit, which is going to take place this year in September in the United Kingdom, in South Wales. We look forward to welcoming the President, and of course, 30 other heads of government, plus the heads of government of the NATO partners who will be there as well. A few months ago, people were saying, well, what do we need NATO summits for? Because the Cold War is over, and you know, everything's hunky-dory, isn't it? Well, actually, no, it isn't. And uh, nobody's saying anymore, what's the point of having a NATO summit? It's going to be an extremely important occasion. We've got to take stock of what's been going on in Central and Eastern Europe. We've got to take stock of the fitness of our alliance. And as Michael was saying, absolutely rightly, we have to look at the continuing commitment of other members of the alliance, not just the United States, to shoulder their share, their share of the responsibility to ensure that we stay up with the commitment to 2% of GDP being spent on our defense spending. The United Kingdom is above that level, not very many European partners are. And it's extremely important as we look at the threats that are around the world, which we're having to face up to, that we all remain absolutely committed to what we're doing together. Meanwhile, in addition to dealing with those territorial issues, counter-terrorism issues, we've got to deal with cyber, we've got to deal with that whole range of other challenges we have to deal with. I'm sorry to say the fallout of things like the, the Edward Snowden disclosures of what we are up to uh, in terms of trying to defend our own freedom and our own values. And perhaps I can close just by uh, telling a little story which was reminded me by uh, the chairman of our own intelligence select committee who was here uh, just a few days ago. But back in those days of 1940-1941 when it was all dark and we were on our own wasn't at all clear that Hitler wasn't going to succeed in overrunning the entirety of the European continent. We did have a very, very successful uh, code-breaking operation at a place called Bletchley Park, of which we've just been honoring some of the, the former members. And we did manage to break the codes on the German U-boats. Otherwise, we were going to lose the Battle of the Atlantic. All those convoys, all that equipment you were kindly sending to us to keep Britain afloat, were going to the bottom of the ocean. 
We broke the code. We managed to intercept the U-rate instructions. We knew where they were coming. We could destroy them, but we could warn the convoys, and we began to turn the corner. And not least, thanks to that success of that operation, the United Kingdom survived until the United States uh, came to the rescue, if you like, after Pearl Harbor. Had Bletchley Park been the victim of an Edward Snowden whistleblowing so-called operation, the entire value of that intelligence operation, keeping the United Kingdom in the war, would have been lost. So there are moments, the point about Bletchley, when it is absolutely essential that intelligence operations in defense of our national security must remain secret. It doesn't all have to be advertised in The Guardian, The New York Times, uh, and The Washington Post at every time, just because one or two people who work in those organizations think it would be fun to make it public. So um, a little warning that <laughs> these things are important, uh, and it's not frivolous, and it is not hiding things that don't need to be done. It is actually necessary for our national security to ensure that our real secrets remain secret. I think that's plenty for me by way of introduction. Congressman, thank you so much for having me for the, for the warm welcome. Thank you all uh, for having us here. I look forward very much to doing my little bit of answering questions that you have in a moment. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, speaking of Churchillian courage, if you think about a leading Democrat coming into the Republican club with all of these Republicans gazing down on the wall at you, it takes a bit of courage to come and do that. But seriously, of course, the, the uh, top Democrat on the Armed Services Committee is Adam Smith from Washington. Uh, I firmly believe that there is no member of Congress Republican or Democrat, who is more thoughtful, more carefully analytical in trying to figure out what's good for the country, and then has the courage to pursue what he thinks is good for the country, uh, regardless of its popularity, than, than Adam. And so I very much appreciate his being here today, and would introduce the gentleman from Washington, Mr. forward to you being chairman, even though I know I can't say that. If it helps me to do it for other guys, then however, however we get you there. No, we, great member of Congress, um, very, very thoughtful, and keeps up the bipartisan tradition on the Armed Services Committee that has, that has kept us going in some very, very difficult times. Uh, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to be here with him and with the ambassador. Um, I had the honor of visiting Normandy with my wife about five years ago, and it is an incredibly moving experience to look at that and think of the, the courage and the sacrifice that it took um, to do that. Just an unbelievable operation. It was, it was something to see. We also had the opportunity to visit uh, some of the American cemeteries over there to really get a feel for the sacrifice that was made, um, certainly by this country, but by, by Great Britain as well, and the incredible accomplishment um, that came from that. Although I will say, when I think of Winston Churchill, the first quote that always comes to my mind is that you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing once they've exhausted all the other options. <laughs> um, so, you know, no relationship is perfect. <laughs> you work your way through it. And I was also thinking about what the ambassador said about the great uncertainty of that time. And I grew up reading about World War II in history books. We won. It's all good. Um, you know, and, and you don't you have to take yourself back in that moment and realize that the people that were doing that didn't know that they were didn't know how it was going to end, and 
you know, the, the pressure of that, I think, is just it's, it's, it's hard to imagine, but I also hope it's instructive for us in this time uh, when we think about the difficulties that we face, and sometimes they can seem overwhelming. Um, I still contend that whatever we face right now is nothing compared to what the world faced back at that time. Uh, and it also puts us in a position to know that we can work our way through this. And I think the partnership between us and Great Britain uh, is going to be enormously important in that. Because when you think about it, the challenges that we face right now really derive from that basic principle of government, as was stated, that you know, it's about the rule of law, uh, it's about freedom, it's about representative democracy, and really it's about all those places in the world right now that don't have that and are falling apart as a result. Um, and having a number of impacts on the rest of us. How do we work with each other and with them to change that? And, and it's going to take us working in the Middle East, North Africa, and elsewhere to help establish the rule of law and representative democracy and freedom, to build governments that their people can believe in. Uh, because the fact that so many people in that part of the world don't believe in their governments leads to the chaos in places like Somalia and Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq. Um, and we're going to have to work together to make that happen. And I want to compliment Great Britain, go in a slightly different direction, and the Armed Services Committee. Um, and certainly I agree with Mac that a strong military is an enormously important piece of this. But I honestly believe that going forward, the more important policy for us is going to be development policy. How do you work with other countries in the world to build those basic structures of government so they can govern themselves? And here, nobody does it better than Great Britain. Department for International Development, which as I understand it, you inconveniently changed the name of and I never can remember what the new name is. So it's still uh, different. It's it still is still different. different. Okay. Um, it's a cabinet level department that does development. And they do it better than anybody else in the world. I got to know Douglas Alexander when he was the uh, minister of that particular department and have worked closely with him. That is going to have to be part of what we do. I mean, we could go into Iraq right now and drop a bunch of bombs in two weeks, three weeks, six months from now things wouldn't be really that much different. What we have to figure out how to do is build the basics of governance and the basics of society. Um, Iraq regrettably fell apart this time because, well, Maliki and others didn't build a lasting government. Uh, it's corrupt and incompetent and the people won't stand for it. So we're going to have to work comprehensively on security and on development. And I can think of no better partnership uh, to get that done and get that done right than working with Great Britain on both pieces of that. So I'm pleased to be here uh, in such distinguished company. And again, I really just want to emphasize how great it is uh, to have Max Bornberry in Congress um, and other <laughs> to be able to work together and uh, solve problems. I tell people this all the time. People think about politics these days. They think of partisanship. They think of polls. They think of who's good. Mac and I think of it as trying to solve problems to make our country a better place to live in. That's what it's supposed to be. It's really great to have a member of Congress so high up on the other side of the aisle um, who not only believes in that, but has been done for it and making it happen. So it's great to be here. Uh, I look forward to your questions. Now, we have a few minutes for Q&A. Ambassador Morella, you did such a great job with your initial introduction. You can either ask the first question or you can pass. So I will, and there is no wrong answer with that. No, I, I really, I, I am very impressed with the three of them. I think they talked about the connection, this wonderful relationship we have. And I, I think about that Battle Monuments Commission because I, I think about the fact that Blackjack Kirby started it and it was followed by George Marshall. And the concept was time will not dim the honor of their deeds. 
and then after the invasion was in Sherbert uh, unloading. So he was in Hull in London. But my question is, um, following up on this discussion, do you, uh, there's been a lot of talk about potentially the partitioning of Iraq, you refer to it yourself as, you know, the Kurdish area and other areas. Do you think that is going to happen and what effect would that have on you know, geopolitics in the wake of that? <laughs> I'll pass it to a real expert in a second. Um, I think the hope of all of us uh, would be, I think, that Iraq remains as a functioning country. You tear up maps and borders uh, at your cost, it seems to me. It becomes extremely messy. Uh, whatever you may think of the basis on which those borders were drawn after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War, uh, to rip a country apart, uh, often leads to yet more tensions turning up and yet more bloodshed. So I think uh, we're not at that point. I think that it is perfectly possible to have a government in Iraq which adopts a more inclusive approach to all the different groups, tribes, um, faiths, ethnicities that exist in that country so that Iraq can become a successful, highly prosperous country because there's immense natural riches in that country uh, which remains intact. I think myself that it's too early to talk about the fragmentation of the country, but I'm not a bit surprised that people are talking about it uh, in, in hypothetical terms because of the problems that we have seen arise over the last few years there. Well, I, I just agree that uh, uh, a, a functioning Iraq is still possible, and, and I completely agree that you you wipe away old borders at considerable cost and considerable risk. Uh, but it may end up that way. But, but just for the people who say, oh, that wouldn't be so bad to have a, a, a sectarian division, remember the Sunni side of that are not nice people. It's not like they just have different religious beliefs. These are among the most bloodthirsty, you know, violent uh, terrorists that exist on Earth that would control that Syria or Iraq portion. And so there are real dangers for the world, for the UK, for us, if, if that safe haven is allowed to continue um, from which terrorism can emerge. Okay, so I, I feel, I think it's pretty much, it's too strong a statement to say it's already happened, but it's pretty darn close. I mean, the, the bad things that happen when you split up a country is you have civil war and massive sectarian violence. Yeah, uh, that's been happening in Iraq now for at least, I think, seven years. Uh, probably longer than that. Um, so I think as, as you look at the facts on the ground right now, you look at the Kurdish portion, the Sunni portion, the Shia portion, they are as separate as they've ever been. Um, so I think we have to acknowledge that up front. Now the hope, there's two big pieces of this. One is that you do come up with some sort of power sharing agreement. Now it's going to be incredibly autonomous. Um, you are not gonna have the type of central government in Baghdad controlling Iraq that we envisioned even you know, as late as 2008 when we were getting ready to leave, um, not going to happen. I mean, the, the rifts are too deep. You're going to have to have you know, considerable autonomy uh, for those, those two other portions of Iraq. And that's what we're going to have to work towards. That's the government, hopefully, the Iraqis are forming right now. Um, and the second piece of it is what Mac mentioned. You know, what is going to happen in, if you will, Sunni land? Um, now, the interesting thing is a number of Sunni tribes align themselves with ISIL because they hate Maliki, um, and with pretty good reason, actually. Um, not because they buy into this psychotic vision that ISIL has for how they're going to run it. 
And that's, that's good, but the question is, once this is done, well, then what is the running of Mosul going to look like? ISIL has their clear vision, and they're trying to implement it. There are going to be many Sunni tribes who are not going to like that. Are they going to be able to stop it? Are they going to be willing to try? Um, what can we do to sort of push that, that somewhat autonomous portion of Iraq towards a more moderate vision? And part of that might involve some military action, uh, might involve targeting the ISI, ISIL folks, um, but it's going to be difficult. But I think we, we are past the point where we can say, gosh, you know, we have to, we have to hold Iraq together because if it broke up, bad things would happen. Uh, ship has sailed. Um, the question is now, how can we piece it back together in a way that number one has, you know, at least some modicum of security for Iraq, and number two, and actually as a as American and interested by national security, I would actually invert those in terms of importance. Uh, number two, make sure they don't threaten us. Um, that's our point. You know, how can we make sure that whatever problems they have stay local and don't become transnational? With that, I've got to go, actually. Uh, I've got a couple things i got to do. Uh, but I thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here this morning, and uh, this is a great group. Appreciate the work you're doing.